Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Blacks, a rich, smooth, and truly delicious chocolate experience. Welcome back to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Great news on the people power front. The incredible petition of nearly 180,000 signatures in support of survivors of mother and baby homes and the sterling work of the Clan Project. I mean, the Adoption Rights Alliance and human rights lawyer Maeve O'Rourke, who we featured on the podcast recently, led to a U-turn by the government who have announced a change in their stated policy of sealing the records. In a statement, the government said it had a detailed reflection on the issues raised in recent days and acknowledges and regrets the genuine hurt felt by many people. Minister for Children Roderick O'Gorman said he consulted with the Office of the Attorney General who confirmed that GDPR laws do apply to the archive, meaning people will have a right to access personal information. And there are caveats, of course, and anyone seeking to get information will have to prove that doing so does not infringe on the rights of others or undermine the work of the Commission of the Investigation. But it really does show that people power and campaigning and raising awareness of injustices can have a massive impact. The report on the mother and baby homes all 4,000 pages of it is going to the government this week but it will be a while before it's published and we need to stay vigilant on this issue but it's a good week for all involved and if that was you and if you raised your voice on this well very well done. Just a quick reminder of our big night in, renamed the Big Fright Inn for Halloween night on Saturday. We have author and comedy queen Catelyn Moran coming on to discuss her latest book, More Than a Woman. And if you've got tickets for Saturday night already, make sure to dress up on the night, post a picture of yourself and use the hashtag on Twitter IT Big Fright In. That's hashtag IT Big Fright In. And if you haven't got a ticket, go to irishtimes.com forward slash big night in and you can get one there. Or you can also try your look on our Instagram page at IT Women's Podcast. We are giving away a ticket there too. Now, later in today's episode, we're going to be talking to the author of an original, evocative, and lyrical book called Ghost in the Throat. She is poet Diren Nigrifa. The act of bringing small children to a library. And the act of reading to small children is such a gift because you carry it with you all your life, don't you? It it, it opens the, the door to the whole world of books, which can be such a comfort and such a provocation. And um, it's something that's brought a lot of depth to my own life. So I'm very grateful to both my parents for, for allowing me and my sisters that kind of an early life. You know, it built us. They're the bricks we're built from, you know. Now, a true original, this stunning prose debut by Diren Nigrifa weaves two stories together. In the 1700s, an Irish noblewoman on discovering her husband has been murdered, drinks handfuls of his blood and composes an extraordinary poem that reaches across the centuries to another poet. In the present day, a young mother narrowly avoids tragedy in her own life, 
On encountering the poem, she becomes obsessed with finding out the rest of the story. Dirin Grifa has sculpted a fluid hybrid of essay and autofiction to explore the ways in which a life can be changed in response to the discovery of another's. In this case, Eileen Dovney Connell's Quina Art e Lyra, famously referred to by Peter Levi as the greatest poem written in either Ireland or Britain during the 18th century. So it's a devastating and timeless tale about finding your voice by freeing another's. And I read it first back before the pandemic on a day off when I was actually trying to escape being a mother for a day myself. And I picked the wrong book to bring with me. But actually, maybe it was the right one. It's a visceral read, dripping with breast milk, full of the mundanity and the glory of motherhood. It's poetic and provocative and really unforgettable. I began by asking Darren to explain where she first found the inspiration for this unique work. Well, thank you so much. I'm I'm glad that, you know, that the book spoke to you and that it found you, you know, that in itself for someone like me who's coming from the tradition of of writing books of poetry in the Irish language. It feels like a small miracle that this book is is finding readers out there, you know, so I'm really glad that it found you, Roisin, and thank you for reading it. Um, I suppose the beginnings of this book came with my interest in a poem, a very old poem called Queen Arthi Lyra. A lot of people would have studied it at school, but I don't think like I think it's only occasionally on the curriculum now. Um, so lots of people I would speak to about it wouldn't have heard of it. And um, when I came to that poem, it was at a really intensely busy and exhausting time in my own life where um, I had four children under the age of six with all that comes along with that, you know, and um, I was often very tired and muddled and throughout all those kind of very tiring days, there was one thing that that stayed steady and became such a comfort to me. And that was this really old poem um, called Queen Arthur Lear, as I say. The poem itself is really powerful in that it occurs from the body and from the voice of a woman who composed it over 200 years ago. And that woman was called Eileen Dovni Connell. Um, she was standing in her house one afternoon when she saw her husband's horse return alone with no rider. And when she went to the horse, she saw that the saddle was covered in blood. So she knew something terrible had happened to her husband. And instead of calling for help, she jumped into the saddle and was carried to where his body had been thrown, where he had been shot. Um, and she fell to her knees and roared in grief over his body. And in that moment of all-consuming grief, she she cupped his blood and drank of his blood. And then from, I suppose, from the roar of grief that came from her body, that began to take shape into words. And, and the words that came from her mouth that day became a keen, which would have been a traditional form of poetry that she would have heard practiced all her life um, and would have heard in such moments. So it's not as unusual as it might be for someone like you or, or like me, you know, in that kind of a moment that we would suddenly start to speak this poem. But this would have been something she would have been very familiar with. So she began to speak this poem and the poem that she spoke became Queen Arthi Lyra. 
Um, and that was the poem that found me so many years later and that brought me such comfort. And I suppose, Roisin, the more I return to the poem, I'm a very nosy person. So the more I return to the poem, the more curious I became about Eileen Dove herself. I didn't just want the poem beyond a certain point. I wanted to know about her life. I wanted to know who she was, what her life was like before that moment and after it, what became of her next, you know. So that sent me on an adventure. And it's that adventure that forms the core of this book, A Ghost in the Throat. And we should say the ghost in the throat. It's like Eileen is the ghost in your throat, that even in this very intense time of your life where you have so much coming at you from all angles and you're kind of it's such a a position of responsibility for these four tiny lives. You can't kind of quite leave Eileen away that she's you keep picking her up. And there's a beautiful depiction of all these um, half drunk cups of tea that I think many new mothers will recognise that you keep having to heat up in the microwave to drink, you know, And, and, and and Eileen is sort of there all the time in the shadows and the and those in between moments. Um, But what do you think, uh, looking back, what was the root of the, you said adventure, I think it was a bit of an obsession. And I mean that in the best sense, but you've you've definitely feel haunted by her and obsessed by her through through this book. Where did it come from? Like, what were the parallels with her that you were seeing in your own life? Well, I suppose that the first encounter I would have had myself with the poem happened when it was when I was in primary school. And I'm ashamed to say that my first encounter with the poem, I was mostly bored by it, you know, like I was by a lot of things in primary school. <laughs> um, so it didn't make as much of an impression on me when I first came to it. And it would have anyway only been like a tiny part of it, I suppose. Then when I came to it as a teenager, oh, I was just mad for that kind of um, Romeo and Juliet angle. You know, the idea of the drinking of the blood, the idea of the fact that she had eloped with this really handsome young flesh she saw strutting across the street in McCroom. Loved that as a teenager, you know. But to answer your question, when I came to it again as an adult, I think the first thing that really drew me into it, almost with a magnetic force, was that when I returned to the poem, I saw something that I had never noticed before, which was that Eileen Dove um, mentions that she's pregnant with her third child. Um, And I don't know whether it was just that that wouldn't have interested me as a teenager. You know, that didn't seem half as cool as the whole blood angle and the elopement. (laughs) But... um, Yeah, I was really drawn by that when I returned to it. And I could see almost like a mirror in it, you know, that this poem had been composed in a place very close to where I was doing what felt like endless school runs and, you know, cleaning nappies and... um, A lot of breastfeeding. Yeah, a lot of breastfeeding. (laughs) Bringing kids through their immunizations, doing grocery shops, blah, blah, blah. And the fact that suddenly I was seeing, oh... You know, here's someone who inhabited this place hundreds of years ago and her life must have been so different from the lives that all of us are having in the same place now. And yet I felt kind of uh, almost like that physical connection of the fact that I was pregnant with my third child when I was returning to this poem and there she was pregnant with her third child and and having to face into this extraordinary horror and this grief. And um, she began to feel like 
she began to feel closer and closer to me. And I began to feel almost like she was keeping me company. You know, it can be quite lonesome. And I think it's something we don't speak about maybe that much, but it can be quite lonesome when you have small children and you're really doing your best and yet you feel like a failure every blooming hour of the day, you know. Well, I, I definitely do anyway. And um, it felt like she was there keeping me company, you know. It's it's very difficult to articulate. It felt quite mysterious in a way that I think some parts of life are a bit mysterious and maybe the things that we don't necessarily chat about openly, but... You know, I think all of us carry a certain amount of ghosts. And I use that term very loosely, but, uh, you know, presences of people that have brought us comfort in the past, you know, whether like a beloved grandparent or that we carry these presences with us and that they do bring us comfort sometimes. And just because we don't necessarily talk about it that much doesn't mean that they aren't with us, you know, and that feels really precious to me and really um, important. One of the beautiful threads in the book is this phrase that you keep repeating uh, is this is a female text. And I definitely that day when I was sitting in a cafe kind of having a little day to myself, it, re- it really struck me and kind of I found it quite moving. And you also talk about, I think, a little cardigan that uh, your mum gave one of your children. Uh, I think it was yellow or whatever. You describe that as a female text as well. You know, every stitch in it, a kind of syllable or a word. Why was it important um, in your, and why is it important in your work to kind of, you mentioned there are stories of women and things about women that aren't told, but there's a real sense in this book that you're kind of, um, you know, resetting that balance and, and telling the story of this woman, telling the story of a woman yourself um, in, in that motherhood situation. Was that very important as a motivation in writing? It was to me, Roisin, yeah. Like, I feel like there are so many silences and so many gaps around our tellings of our lives. And um, particularly historically, I mean, you go out like I did and, and attempt to tend to the echoes that remain now of a woman who lived hundreds of years ago. Very difficult, you know, because so little has been kept. And, and why is that? You know, why... Why don't we know where Eileen Dovni Connell was buried? I feel like if I know it's a, quite a simplistic angle and I'll preface this by saying that, but I, I do feel like that if this was a work of literature composed by a man, that we would at least know where he was buried, you know, and, and it seems such a shame that there comes a point in her life where, you know, she she just evaporates, you know, like a cloud of steam dissipates and she's just gone. So in attempting to to write this book, I did want to see what would happen if you tried to speak into those silences that occur in the tellings of the lives of women historically, but that honestly are still there, you know, they're still there, they're still swirling around us. And um, I just, I wanted to experiment with that. The idea of it being a female text, and that's kind of a refrain throughout the book, Again, that seemed so strange to me at the start because that I was leaving Kilcray Abbey with my daughter one day and um, that was one of the places that we know that Eileen Dovni Connell spoke Queen Arthi Lyra and it's where Arthur Lyra is now buried. Um, so visiting his tomb and knowing that she stood there and visiting with my baby daughter, you know, um, clipped her back into the car seat and I started to drive home. And this sentence just kept repeating itself in in my head 
this is a female text. And I didn't know what that meant, you know. Sometimes that happens to me and, and something keeps insisting on itself. And um, a lot of the process of writing this book for me was trying to untangle what that meant. What is a female text? Um, and what what kind of, when you consider that it, from a more oblique angle, are there different elements and different images that surround us that could be considered a female text, you know? Um, and I found that interesting to try and look at things, for example, like that, that my mother-in-law had knitted a little cardigan um, in bright pink for my daughter. <laughs> and to look at that, you know, and, and to th consider all the nights that she spent sitting down watching the telly and knitting and knitting and knitting to create this little garment for her granddaughter who hadn't been born at that stage, you know, that it's such an act of hope. It's such an act of fidelity and it's an act of um, caring for each other in a very tangible way. And it feels like the act of writing to me, you know, like all those stitches one after the other and following a pattern that does feel like a female text. Now, that's not to say that the act of knitting is purely female and that this isn't a territory that could be considered male as well. But this was an angle I was looking at in the book and that seemed interesting to me, you know. Um. Well, I should let everyone know that you are an award winning poet and that's been your, as you mentioned, your kind of work up to now. This is your first work of prose and it's called um, it's a it's sort of a, a mix of essays and auto fiction. And some people might not be as familiar as with auto fiction. Can you tell us what that is and what that shift from poetry to prose and excavating your own sort of uh, life in a, in a slightly different way? What was that like for you? Yeah, I suppose like the way that I always think of autofiction is that like if, if I was to sit down at the bus stop with someone and to tell them about this story, which is explored in the book and as it occurred, I'd be saying to them, you know, it's a true story. It's true, but it's also a story. So that's how I describe autofiction. This is true, but it's also a story. You know, it's the truth told as a story. Um, So I suppose that that was important to me to bring the reader along with me in an attempt to write the life of this woman and to write my own life in a way that was as open as possible, but to draw the reader's attention to the fact that there were necessarily these silences and gaps and mysterious parts where we don't really know what exactly is occurring at this point in Eileen Dove's life, say, for example. And here's what I imagine might have been happening. So the fact that the reader is with me and that they understand that what they're hearing is this element of a true story, but that the story part of it is there as well as the truth, you know. Um, to answer the second part of your question, I, th I think the, the transition from writing poetry to writing prose was in some ways very interesting to me because the pursuit of the way a thought develops through a longer piece of writing was just fascinating for me, you know, to kind of fall into that and to see where it would where it would bring me and where it would bring the reader was really interesting. A, a poem is like a, a tiny, very intricate, carefully wrought machine, you know, and it's a machine for feeling and a machine for thought. Um, like every comma, every line break is is so important. Um, and it was interesting to bring the skills and the 
I suppose the craft that poetry has taught me over the past decade and attempt to write a much longer work. I mean, Roisin, like between us, there's parts of this book of prose that read like poetry, you know, because I've read the whole thing out loud to myself so many times. And even sometimes we go back over and over a paragraph trying to make it sound less like a poem and more like prose. But it defeated me sometimes, you know, there's bits of it that do read like like a poem. And I suppose there came a point in the process of writing the book where I kind of had to own that and just be like, look, I am a poet. So bits of it are going to sound like a poem. But actually, what surprised me is that readers seem to really, really enjoy that element. I think sometimes we underestimate readers, you know, they love something unusual. They love something that carries them along and that just grabs them in the vividness of a story. And and in the vividness of a certain voice, I know for me as a reader, sometimes the strangest books are the ones that draw me into them the most. That's so interesting you say that, because like, I, I have to be honest, it, your book wouldn't be the type of thing that I would naturally sort of necessarily pick up or be drawn to. That's the truth. Um, But I did find myself, you know, despite myself carried away, that's a very good way of describing it, and immersed in this thing that was so unusual and different. And your voice is so original and... um. Like they're definitely I mean, you you don't the you can't take the poet out of the prose writer or whatever, <laughs> you, you know, it's so poetic and uh, and there's it's compelling in that way. So I'm really glad that I'm not the only one. I think that I think there's probably a lot of people who even listening who might think this book isn't for them, but it actually could find that it actually is. Do you know that way? I mean, I'm, I'm really glad that you've had that response from other people, too. Maybe, yeah, it's underestimating the readers and kind of um, assuming that everyone needs things to be quite linear and quite obvious or something but because this is very all over the place in lots of ways you don't know where it's going there's a almost like a there's a magical element there's a fantasy element to it as well um but uh yeah it's kind of an extraordinary achievement you know yeah it is really interesting to think of in that way and I think at the end of the day what I would say on that is like any woman that would sit down at me and be like, I, I want to tell you about my life. I want to tell you about what my life has been like and what it's like. I mean, I'm all in voting. I want to know everything. You know, I love that. And that's that was really important for me in writing this book where I wanted to be totally open with the reader. You know, I wanted to open all the doors and windows of my house and say, look, this is what it's like for me. You know, come in. You know, that's what it felt like. And I felt like I I needed to be that open because I was attempting to be that open about the life of another woman. Like I was trying to tell all the facts of another woman's life. And how could I be sneaky about hiding facts of my own in that case? It, it demanded a certain amount of courage like that, you know. But I mean, it's the courage that we show each other anyway. Uh, there's not there's no greater privilege, I don't think, than sitting down with a woman of any age and them telling you about their lives. I I find that intensely, intensely moving. And so it, this book felt like a gesture towards that for me. Were there any bits that were difficult? Because there's a particularly um, sort of visceral moving part where, you know, you are having to have surgery, for, you know, when you're you're about to have your birth, give birth to your one of your children. And um, that's that's so um, raw. Was it hard or did you find that um, 
useful to kind of put down in words that experience? Um, I think birth stories are spectacular and like insist constantly on calling them a genre of literature. You know, it's very familiar having studied the life of Eileen Dovney Connell and the fact that the poem that survives of her survived in oral form. The fact of our birth stories feels like an oral genre of literature to me as well. Because so often we don't write the birth story down, but it's living, important form of literature that we sometimes just tell each other. And sometimes that that birth story is just alive and carried inside ourselves for our whole lives. You know, there's such important moments. There's such urgent stories. And again, I would listen to people telling their birth stories all day. I absolutely love it. So, um. Yeah, it, it it was important for me to include that birth story. My, that was my last birth, you know, um, within the book. And again, to be open about that, to be open about the mistakes that I made and um, how frightening it was. It was very different from my other three births. Um, and I was very fortunate that I had such a great doctor, you know. Tell us about it, um, Darren. So my my youngest child, my daughter, um, I was in to visit the doctor and she noticed on a scan that there were these white patches, um, I suppose, on the placenta that there was deterioration there and that my um, baby was in trouble. So there was um, great urgency in um, in hastening her birth, I suppose. And then she was in neonatal ICU for a few weeks um, afterwards um which which was hard but like you get a very good perspective I think when you're in that kind of situation of how many different stories are unfolding all around you and really it keeps things very much in perspective like when you're sitting by an incubator in the neo it's not a place where you generally I think feel sorry for yourself because you can see what's going on all around you. And it's it's important to keep an eye on all the stories that are, as I say, kind of gradually unfolding all around you. And I don't know, for me, it was very much of getting through the hours, you know, getting through each hour and, and hoping that everything would be all right. And, and our baby's issues were relatively... Um, relatively, I suppose, straightforward for the doctors to address. But I think that was... Um, an experience that will stay with me for my whole life, you know, um, and the the admiration and the awe that I held for the people who were at work, the cleaning staff, the nurses, the doctors um, all around us and the other parents, you know, that that will stay with me forever. So it felt really important to include that as well within the book. I've been by one of those um, cots myself with my um, one of my daughters and I, I totally relate to what you say there. And again, in, same as your situation, ours was much less sort of traumatic than, say, lots of the other stories unfolding around. But yeah, I've never experienced anything like that in my life. I hope I never do again. It's it's kind of extraordinary. Um, and, and like you say, the people who are working there and and dealing with that day in, day out, it is heroism beyond um, beyond anything. Um, it is it is a lot. I mentioned earlier about kind of domesticity. And the kind of ordinary day to day routines and duties and tasks that many, many people listening to this podcast know intimately, but would not maybe consider to be worthy of a of an insertion in a literary um, 
novel or prose or whatever it's, it's called a book such as yours but you put them all in and I'd love if you could read a little bit um of some of that because uh when I sat in that cafe reading your book like uh I just I really enjoyed kind of your um insistence in marking all those things and putting them in and saying these aren't going to be recounted and I'm not going to try to dress them up and to try and make them sound uh anything else than what they are and it's kind of unusual I think yeah again I mean (laughs) this was just the strange direction that this book um drew me in I suppose um this is the truth of my life you know like a lot of other people my age uh, a lot of my days involves you know picking up toys off the floor and putting on a laundry wash and getting dinner ready and that kind of thing and um that wrote itself into the book so yeah i'll 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 read a little bit of that so far this morning i have only crossed off the school run from my list a task that encompassed waking the children, dressing, washing and feeding them, clearing the breakfast table, finding coats and hats and shoes, brushing teeth, shouting the word shoes several times, filling a lunchbox, checking a school bag, shouting for shoes again, and then finally walking to the school and back. Since returning home, I have still only half filled the dishwasher, half helped my son with his jigsaw and half mopped the floor. Nothing really worthy of deletion from my to-do list. I cling to my list because it is this list that holds my hand through my days, breaking the hours into a series of small, achievable tasks. By the end of a good list, when I am held again in my sleeping husband's arms, this text has become a sequence of scribbles, an obliteration that I observe in joy and satisfaction because the gradual erasure of this handwritten document makes me feel as though I have achieved something of worth in my hours. This list is both my map and my compass. And your list is a female text. I think we can definitely agree. <laughs> you know, yeah. part of the uh, structure of the book is this kind of you're you're going to do your own translation of um, the keening of the uh, of Artelira. And and you do that you we get the reader gets that at the end, gets your translation of this, you know, centuries old Irish uh poem that has been translated before by I think three or four other people. Um and what do you think is different about yours? That's the first thing I want to ask you. Why is your translation um different to the ones that we had already? Yeah, it's it's really interesting as a literary artifact, this poem, because it's almost like a rite of passage for Irish poets. Like there are so many translations of this poem. So many poets have done it. Like I can't even keep track. I set myself a task at one stage of trying to source every single translation that I could. And that was so difficult. I, <laughs> I'm sure there are some that I've missed um and like any other series of translations of a single work of literature there are um a variety of different attempts that have different quality i would say to put it politely um some of them are great and some of them are not some so of them great. are crap is what you're saying yeah dear. yeah some of them are awful <laughs> crap um, <laughs> but um 
I yeah, I suppose first of all, I went about trying to read all those translations and then I decided in kind of a foolhardy way to attempt my own translation. And that was fascinating because what became clear to me as I started to translate this, and it's a long poem, you know, there are more than 30 verses here. Um, as I started to translate it, it felt started to feel very much like closer to housework than to attempting a grand form of literature, you know, um, because in so many, the, the Italian, this, the word stanza, I know the word for verse comes from the Italian for room. So as I was going through um, translating it, it felt like I was doing it stanza by stanza, but also room by room, you know, and that I was trying to make sure that each room I built a replica of bore a resemblance to the room that existed in Eileen Dove's poem. So there were great acts of like comparing the fabric of a curtain, say, a certain word I would have chosen in my translation and whether it matched the colour of the curtains in her original poem. And that was really useful to me, you know, because that felt like something I could do. I, I can I can do that, you know, I can I can attempt that. And and the closer that I came to the text because I, I would always attempt something like that by speaking aloud a lot, you know. So I was reading her poem aloud and then reading my translation aloud over and over and over again. And the closer that I came to her text, the closer I came to her voice. Um, and that felt like almost like quite intimate at certain times, like it felt um, I felt closer and closer to her. When I came to the end of the process of translating it, I think one of my biggest flaws actually is that I'm not great at bigging myself up, protein. Because when I came to the end of it, I was kind of like, oh, I just spent ages translating that. And actually mine is not much better than anyone else's, you know. So when you ask, like, what makes mine different? My honest reaction is, I don't know. It was more the act of engaging with her poem that really moved me. You know, that sense of feeling closer and closer. And it, do you know what it feels like? It feels like pressing your ear to the wall of another room and listening so closely. And sometimes you can hear someone moving around in there. That's what the act of translating this poem felt like to me. I could sometimes I could almost feel her like I could hear her. I could almost, almost feel her. And um, so that it was it was that element of it that moved me. But, yeah, no. I mean, you could ask any of the other poets who've translated and they might be able to give you a great answer like, oh, my translation's the best because X, Y, Z. And I'm just like, my translation's not the best and I don't know why I did it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love the honesty of that answer. Green and Black's Organic Chocolate, a selection of ethically sourced flavours combined with a rich cocoa intensity. Listen, I have to ask you because you're a surname Negriefa and... Um, you you do you have a, you have a few sisters? I do, I do. I have two beautiful and extremely talented sisters. Yeah, yeah, and they're both working with words in various ways. Would that be fair to say? It is. Yeah, yeah. So my sister Fina works for Penguin Ireland, and she does a spectacular job there. And my sister Evelyn runs Scalella Books in Ennis and County Clare, which is a great bookshop um as we're recording this we're in lockdown so it's things are really tricky for local bookshops at the moment but there are usually as far as i can see anyway from my early explorations into this there are usually ways that you can still support your local bookshop whether it's 
like, I mean, you obviously have to go to whichever bookshop and they'll be able to tell you. But sometimes if you ring them up, you can put in an order to be posted to you. Sometimes some bookshops have great websites like Kenny's have great websites and Shkelele is like that. You know, if you if you get in touch, they'd be more than happy to sort you out with some books. It's a lovely spot. Like my sister Evelyn that runs it has done such a fantastic job of creating a really welcoming space. And I know once we're out of lockdown um, that um, all the customers will be hurrying back there again. There's a lovely little stove at the back of her shop, you know, that they often have um, lit and it's really cosy and, and comforting place. That's lovely. I, that's a m- most beautiful plug for your sister's uh, shop and for your other lovely sister as well. What, what I was at, getting at there was how come the three of you has, have ended up in these very literary uh, fields? So what was the early life like? And uh, do, can we sort of um, thank and blame the parents for all of it? <laughs> Is that the way it works? Yeah, I think that's exactly how it works. I mean, I see it at work in my own family now that I have my own kids, you know, they're total bookworms. But then I think of how they were reared, you know, like, I mean, they were constantly seeing me with a book in hand or I would be reading them a story. And uh, actually at one stage, I used to be so exhausted when one of the other kids was a baby that I'd be reading a story to a couple of the toddlers with my eyes closed. But I knew the words off by heart, you know, and, and would be able to just say it from memory while like half asleep sometimes. Um, but yeah, my my parents are very bookish as well. And it was definitely them that um, handed the fondness for books, I suppose, to us. I mean, we were brought to the library every week when we were little and the library in Ennis is, is beautiful. You know, there's a little what I always thought of as a cave at the back of the children's library where you can step down into like a little well and it feels quite private and um like you could carry your little book down there and have some time on your own. So the library in Ennis was definitely pivotal for me. And I think the act of bringing small children to a library and the act of reading to small children is such a gift because you carry it with you all your life, don't you? It it, it opens the the door to the whole world of books, which can be such a comfort and such a provocation. And um, it's something that's brought a lot of depth to my own life so I'm very grateful to both my parents for for allowing me and my sisters that kind of an early life you know it built us they're the bricks we're built from you know um yeah that's really lovely I think it will resonate with a lot of people I mean I suppose also there'll be people listening going my children won't read it's so annoying you know and like I even find that with my own kids I mean they would have seen me with books all the time and there's so many books in the house but they're not as kind of bookish as I might have you know fantasized about and I suppose it is different now because when we were growing up you know there wasn't that much else and I think now there's so many other things for kids to do that it's one of a lot of things. So I'm really glad to hear that your your children have, have got that. Um, well, they go up and down, to be honest. Like, I mean, they are definitely all quite bookish. But I mean, the three older boys, um, well, the middle two definitely are quite interested in sports, too. So I tend to keep kind of putting like comics, you know, like the sports comic or something or getting those kind of um, books from the library, you know, something about soccer or something about hurling or the fact that they're reading anything at all, I think is fine. You know, they're not reading great tomes of literature now that, you know, it's just the fact that they're reading anything, you know, and I kind of feel once you keep that going in some way, 
you don't want to turn them off either. Like you don't want to be forcing them to read. There's no quicker way to get them to stop, is there, yeah. you know? No, I'm glad to I'm glad to hear that they're not uh, all reading like Shakespeare and uh, when they ever anything no. else more obscure than <laughs> Far that. Far from it. <laughs> um, a lot of people these days in the current difficulty that we're all living through have turned to poetry in a way that I think is interesting because, you know, uh, before maybe poetry was something for a certain amount of people, but even in the early days of lockdown, um, Leo Varadkar was quoting Heaney and other various other poems are mentioned mm. and there seems to be bringing comfort to people. And I just wondered, um, as a poet yourself, if anyone listening is looking to kind of get any comfort from poetry books or works, would you have any recommendations that um, people might find useful? Yes, absolutely. What I would always say to people is a good, solid anthology of poetry will serve you so well, because especially if you if you keep an anthology of poetry by your bedside and you say to yourself, look, I'll just dip in, you know, sometimes you might have a busy day. Sometimes you might be feeling low. If you dip in and read a poem, um, it will kind of settle you, I think, in some way. I don't know how or why that works, but it's kind of mysterious again. But I, I think it's really important to to let yourself explore that. And I know for me, I only return to poetry as an adult. So I'm very aware, you know, of how people in general might feel about poetry because it's how I felt for so long. I'm like, oh, God, poetry, boring, you know. Um, But when I came back to it in adulthood, what I'd have to say helped me was to think of it like listening to listening to music, like listening to songs. I approach a poem now like I'd approach a song, you know, I listen to it and I enjoy it. I've over the years tried to shed that thing from school of feeling like there are answers, like there's some correct answer to a poem. And it's just a matter of figuring out what the poet is trying to say, that it really is more like listening to a song for me anyway. um, And 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 falling into a poem in that way. Um, I think, as I say, a good anthology and, and you'll find an anthology in your local bookshop, you know, speak to the bookseller. They are always going to point you in the right direction. Um, One volume of poems that I've drawn great comfort from and I've been keeping it next to where I drink my coffee in the morning is the new book by Paula Meehan. Um, it's called As If By Magic and it draws on all the poems that she's written over the years. So she's chosen her favourite poems from each of her own books. And what you see when you open a book like that is how is how an artist develops over the years, you know, the different ways that they speak to you as a reader and how they grow in their artistry. And I suppose Paula Meehan is someone I would deeply admire. I I really like her poems. Um because they speak clearly, you know, there's no messing. There's no like, oh, you know, that thing that you have in secondary school. They're, the poet is saying one thing, but they mean something else. And I can't figure out what it is they're trying to bloody say to me. There's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing like that with Paula Meehan's poems. You know, they speak clearly. They speak with a clear voice. And th- as I say, it's like listening to if it's like listening to a song, her voice just carries me away, you know, and 
Um, that book's called As If by Magic and I'd really, really recommend it. So going back to uh, Eileen Dove-Niconnell, who we should say is the aunt of Daniel O'Connell. Um, so he, she was a noble woman. She was this fascinating uh, person who in so many ways, like you would have had nothing in common with, but like in other ways, just by being a woman with a story and a life and a mother and all of things, there was, there was a lot of parallels. But after going on this adventure and writing the book, what way did you or your life change because of your encounter with her? How do you feel changed by her? Oh, that's such an interesting question. Hmm. Do you know what? I think the most truthful answer to that is, is that I'm still I'm still discovering that. Like I felt when I finished the book, really deep sorrow, which kind of took me by surprise because I felt like, oh, no, now I finished the book. Eileen Dove, Nikonel's presence is going to leave me and I'm going to be on my own again. And I felt um, a real sadness about that. Um, And it was a sadness that was hard to speak to anyone close to me about because it sounded so weird. I mean, like, what? Like, I mean, this isn't someone you know. Why would you feel sad about someone who died hundreds of years ago? But I really did. It it had come to feel like I was walking through my days with her shadow beside mine as well. Um, and, and it was almost like a form of grief. But as um, I finished the book and found a publisher and it started to make its way into the world and, and into readers' hands and into their hearts, I realised as I started to hear back from readers that, uh, no, she hasn't left me and she hasn't left anyone else, that she's just with much more people now she's still with me but she's also with so many more people and that that's um and that that's really important you know to feel her with us and the thing that I'm most hopeful about having finished this book is that um other people will continue to find her and to find out more about her than even than I could you know and yeah, that's definitely my biggest hope as we go forward, that, that other people will continue to take Eileen Dove into their hearts, but also that they'll find out more about this extraordinary life, you know. Well, you've had so many uh, people saying such wonderful things about your book and congratulations on your nomination for the Irish Book Awards. It's wonderful. Um, Emily Pine, who has had her own very um, successful book of essays, calls it an extraordinary book that braids the past and present self and other into a new kind of poetry. And Michael Harding says this is the real thing, a fascinating story bristling with poetic power that must be read. And I'll just do one more before your head gets too big to, to walk through the kitchen. A strange, beautiful and entirely unique book by a wildly talented and exciting writer. That's Mark O'Connell. Um, and, you know, sometimes you read blurbs on the back of the books and you just think, oh, that's by the person's friends or whatever. But I, I've read a lot of accolades for the book and they're just all so passionate and authentic that um. I think people are just raving about it and it is a very, totally unique read. And Roisin, what you have to remember is I know very few people actually because I hardly <laughs> ever get out of the house. <laughs> well, you're like most of us. I don't think most of us are getting out very much for a while anyway, True. for six weeks. But during Negrifa, it's been absolutely fascinating and lovely to talk to you. Uh, congratulations on your book. I, know, I presume you're writing another one. So hopefully that will be... 
out at some point. But surely. <laughs> yes. These things take time. Um, but uh, we'd love to have you back on again when you do have another uh, book to discuss. And in the meantime, mind yourself and your family and take care down there in Cork. Thank you, Roisin. Flan. That was Dearly Griefer there. And the book, which I really have to recommend, is Ghost in the Throat. And thank you very much to her. That's all we have time for. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves, take care. We're going to get through all of this and we'll see you on the other side. I'll talk to you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.